Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hello friends, I am coming to you today from a place of grief and that is not where I thought I'd be, that is not the place that I thought I'd be speaking to you from and this is not the episode that I thought I'd be recording but as the quote goes, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans and life happened and it's been really beautiful and it's also been a really really painful month and even as I sit here speaking I feel myself on the edge of tears I might dip back and forth into some teariness and I'm also coming to you from a place of deep deep gratitude and sort of a sense of silence, you know, kind of a vast ache and not necessarily a, a bad ache, whatever that means, just a vast kind of awareness of life and endings and cycles and the beauty of it. So about three weeks ago, I was busily planning away at my next episode, which was going to be about masturbation, and that one is still in the works, I promise. And thank you so much to everybody who has sent me stories. Please, please send me more. It's been funny, it's been beautiful, it's been moving, and I welcome your stories. And I am finally getting back on track to sorting through all of that and bringing it all together for the next, hopefully, <laughs> the next episode. But in any case, I was um, still busy doing that when I was hit by a series of, of challenges. And I think the first of these was actually my father contacting me again. Unfortunately, we're estranged. Or maybe I should say fortunately we're estranged. I cut contact with him a few years ago. And due to a variety of circumstances, we had to exchange communication again, and it was very, very hard. I could feel my whole body being triggered all over again. I could feel myself tensing and feeling my heart in my throat when I received messages from him, and immediately having to make boundaries and having those boundaries immediately being disrespected, and having to make stronger boundaries and finally having to, again, end contact between us and that was a short-lived episode it only lasted a few days but it was really hard I was actually surprised at the at the intensity of my response of my grief 
of my body tensing. And also at the, the absolute triumph of making and sticking to a boundary and refusing to get drawn into an argument, refusing to get drawn into a back and forth triggering of each other. But it was hard. And I was still reeling from that really when I received the news that my grandfather, my mother's father, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I've spoken in the past on this podcast about my grandmother, my mother's mother, who has been ill. She's she's better now. It's it's always interesting when one person is ill and then rallies and then the other person becomes ill. And my grandparents are 82 and 84. And I've known for a while that my grandparents are nearing the end of their lives and that I've been fortunate to have them in my life for so long, and that I've been fortunate to know them and love them and and sit with them and hear their stories. And there's been a sense of increasing, not even urgency, but a, a realization every time I see my grandparents that this might be the last time. And a few days before my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal cancer, my mom sent us all a message saying, Grandpa's quite sick, he's lost a lot of weight, he's quite weak, he's going in for a checkup, we don't know what it is. And on the Friday, we received his diagnosis. And on the Thursday night, I had a very strange experience of feeling that the veil is really thin, of feeling sort of in touch with a sense of infinity and at the same time a sense of finiteness, a sense of ending. And thinking of my grandfather and having this knowledge settle in me that he had cancer. And I mean, I think that was an educated guess because at 84, if you lose a lot of weight and you feel ill, odds are that you have cancer. So I'm not going to call it a gut feeling necessarily. I think it was simply also just an educated guess. But it really settled in me and there was a grief and there was a gratitude in my heart. And then the next morning, my mom told us that Grandpa is very sick. And and I immediately felt this strong desire to be with my mom, to be with my family. And so that Friday, I drove through to my mother's house, about 300 kilometers away from mine, from my place. And then the next morning, the Saturday morning, we drove through to the town where my grandpa was in hospital. And... As soon as we got there, I think both my mother and I knew that he had very little time. And I felt this immense gratitude to be able to be there, to be able to hold his hand, to be able to laugh at his jokes. My grandfather is an extremely detailed and funny joke teller, (laughs) always embroidering on the story, always adding an extra little detail. And my mom was also determined to really... um, be in this experience and took a lot of videos and a lot of photos and I took my ukulele with me and I played my grandpa a few songs and we visited him every day and my mom is one of five sisters and all five the sisters came together and we were there for a few days and I really saw my grandpa deteriorate within those few days and each day was a bit more hard a bit more difficult to be in the hospital with him to try and talk to him to hold his hand, to see him 
suffering and to really grapple with the question of what is what is it that makes us us what is the thing that makes us human that 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 gives us our own specific flavor what is a soul because my grandfather's personality was changing his he was becoming confused he was becoming um, he was dipping in and out of sleep dipping in and out of consciousness and he hallucinating at some points and witnessing that was on the one hand a huge privilege holding that space for him or even in fact not even holding the space but being allowed into that space being allowed near a person who was gradually readying to cross over was to me a huge privilege and at the same time incredibly difficult to see this funny vital human slipping away and not slipping away easily and to really ask myself what is the part of us that makes us us if your personality changes if your memory goes where does your vital you-ness lie so i've been thinking about the soul and about eternity and about all of those kinds of questions and i don't really have answers but i'm i'm sort of getting comfortable with the questions in any case after about 5 or 6 days my mom and I came back she had to go back to work as did I of course and my grandpa was still in hospital and um the day that I came back a good friend of mine landed in South Africa from France and we hadn't seen each other in 2 years and it was amazing to see her and she stayed with me on and off for a week and that was really nourishing and wonderful and we had so many good and meaty conversations and in a sense it was also tiring it was exhausting not that i minded having her here i loved it but it it simply stirred up things as we spoke about our childhoods as we we compared notes really on our respective wounds and and also being confronted with the areas in my life where i'm not healed and having that compared to somebody who doesn't have those same wounds because she is from France and she has her own heritage her own cultural heritage that comes with its specific set of wounds and i have my own cultural heritage that comes with its specific set of wounds and seeing those two things in stark contrast for instance how a comment from a random older man made me feel extremely triggered and defensive while she didn't care at all but to me it felt very personal because this older man is from the same culture as myself and i know the judgment behind his words i know the paternalism behind his words i know the religiosity behind his words i feel the judgment in a way that she doesn't because she's not invested in the story and it was so interesting having her here in this time that i was thinking about my heritage in this time that i was really thinking about my grandfather in this time of endings having this fresh new perspective spend some time with me talk about her life comparing notes on our relationships and our hopes and dreams for the future and seeing really how different we are even though we we have similar opinions about most things even though we have similar dreams really the baggage that we bring is so different and it just really confronted me with how much of my baggage is cultural and societal and is specific 
to my heritage, to my complicated South African heritage. And whilst my friend was here, I also went through a really, really triggering experience with my partner, the mage. And that lasted for a few days. It lasted over this entire weekend that just passed as well. And while still in that trigger, while still in that beautiful reactivity and ouchness, you know, my friend Catherine and I were walking on the beach with my dog. This is last Thursday, past Thursday. And I received a phone call from my brother. And he told me that my grandpa had just died. And I was surprised at how sad I still felt in spite of the fact that I had said goodbye, in spite of the fact that I had readied myself for it. And the sadness was not just for me, it was for my mother and for her sisters and for my grandmother especially. My grandparents had been married for 60 years. What an ending. What an ending to lose the person that you've been married to for 60 years. I really can't even imagine it. And then the weekend came and I was in a state of 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 grief and exhaustion. My friend Catherine left then and I was at home suddenly alone for the first time in a few weeks. Still very much in the midst of a days-long conversation with the mage where we were going back and forth and really feeling both triggered and wounded and almost feeling out of control. I felt as if I had no control over how much of my childhood wounding was deciding to rear its head. My fear of abandonment, my fear of being replaced, my fear of being alone, especially my fear of being alone. And when I say that, I want to start crying. <laughs> And this is probably going to happen a few times during this podcast. I, I just feel still so raw about it. This, the sense of aloneness and the sense of endings and this realization really that for much of the time in this human experience, we will be alone. And I'll come back to that. But first, let me talk to you about my grandpa. And I want to talk about my grandpa a bit because I have really been on a journey of looking at my heritage and thinking about my ancestry and having really mixed feelings about where I come from and who came before me. This entire year, it's been a theme. And I've been wondering how to reconcile all the strands of fondness and respect for my mother, for my grandparents, for my great-grandparents, whom I knew of, even if I didn't know them. How to reconcile that with the fact that my forefathers were colonizers, were racists, were oftentimes violent racists, were plunderers who came to South Africa armed with the force of conviction and religion and wounded themselves and this land and the people who were already on this land you know and it's such a complicated history South Africa is so complicated and my heritage is so complicated and living in South Africa is so confronting because 
There is no day that goes by where I'm not confronted by abject poverty and by inequality and by suffering and by this gaping racial divide that still breaks my heart and that I am, whether I want to or not, part of as a white person in a country where black people have been oppressed for centuries. I have no choice but to participate in this dynamic in one way or another. I am white whether I want to or not. I am separate in ways that make me deeply uncomfortable and that bring up a huge amount of grief from people of color in South Africa. There is a power gap. There is a an experience gap. We have different heritages of suffering. And I feel, I, f I feel this pain of separation. And I find it hard to look at my forefathers and feel good about them, honestly. Like, how do you feel good about your forefathers when at best they were blind and most likely they were simply religious sanctimonious bastards you know <laughs> and I also want to say that I'm not it's also not that simple because I think very 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 few people can look back to their forefathers and say well my ancestors were pretty fucking great I think almost nobody can say that but I I feel triggered by my my heritage by the Africana heritage of Calvinism and stiffness and prudishness and keeping things hidden in the dark and and at the same time I want to acknowledge that my forefathers did the best they could and were products of their time and how to reconcile all of this and my grandfather was an exceptional man he was I think very wounded in his childhood and still he he built for himself a life that was so authentic and humorous and unpretentious, completely unpretentious. My grandfather was probably the least pretentious person I can think of. Like, I don't think he ever sat down and thought to himself, well, I'm pretty eccentric, aren't I? But he was pretty eccentric, let me tell you. He, uh, he converted to Judaism from Calvinism um, as a young man and that's pretty weird in Afrikaans culture I don't know of any other person who's done that just turned his back on the Dutch Reformed Church and on any other branch of Christian religion and became a Jew does one say a Jew or do you say Jewish I'm not sure and in many other ways politically he was also ahead of his time he I think really struggled against against the imposition of apartheid and found it, I think, challenging to have to work within this unfair system, much in the same way that this gaping inequality chafes at me today. I think it chafed at my grandfather much more in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 80s, and I think that was lonely. My grandfather was a man who knew grief but lived with a lot of joy <laughs> and really embodied that strange axis of grief and joy. He could become very sad, he could become very melancholy, 
and he could also, at the drop of a hat, just crack a joke. He was a man of contrasts in other ways too. He could become frustrated, he could become angry, he could become impatient, dismissive, and then feel contrite, feel really sad about the fact that he had just been dismissive and angry and apologize. I remember my grandpa apologizing to me when he was dismissive and my mom also tells the story of him apologizing to her when she was a child after being dismissive or angry and I think that's a beautiful quality and I also don't want to I don't want to gloss over the struggles he had the faults he had I don't think it's my place to to discuss him in too much detail but I think his legacy is truly a complicated and beautiful one he is survived by five strange and wonderful daughters my mom and my aunts who all are creative and free-spirited and somewhat eccentric and brave when I think of my mom and her family I really think of courage and of joy, a sort of a, a fierce joy, and of togetherness. It's, we're a close family. We're, we are different from each other. We walk different paths. I feel a little bit uncomfortable when I hang out with my extended family because I'm no longer religious and I'm non-monogamous and I'm all of these weird things. And I know that not everybody understands it, but there is a fierce love in my mom's family, and that is so precious. And I think a lot of that comes from my grandfather. He was a forester, a lover of nature, a lover of animals, a rescuer of animals, a singer of songs, a teller of jokes, and an artist. And my previous dog, who was also a Labrador, and I got her at 12 when I was, when I was 12 years old. And then when I went off to varsity, she couldn't come with me. And eventually she went to live with my grandma and grandpa. And she spent the last few years of her life with them. And I will forever be grateful to my grandparents for how much they loved her and cared for her and how my grandpa would take her for walks every day, even when she was so old, they could only walk around the block. And this morning, my mom sent me a photo of my dog, Jabby, that had been on my grandfather's desk with a little note that he wrote to her when they had to put her to sleep when she became ill at 15 and we put her out and by some twist of fate I was also there we were all together when she became ill and my grandfather my grandmother myself my mother my siblings my boyfriend at the time we were all there when we put my dog to sleep and I remember seeing my grandfather sad seeing my grandfather grieve and then he dug a grave and did a little ceremony and buried Jabi. And it was so moving to me when my mom sent me this photo of this little letter that he'd written her saying, we did, we did what we thought was right for you, but it hurt our hearts to let you go, Jabi. <laughs> and I want to say to my grandpa, it really hurts our hearts to let you go. And I'm and I'm really grateful for this complicated and beautiful heritage that you've left us. And I'm really grateful for the way that you were different, unhesitatingly so. <laughs> and didn't spend much time agonizing about the fact that you were different. You just followed your heart.
so it's been a time of loss. And as I said in in my relationships also, I've faced triggers and have been confronted by my unhealed wounds. <laughs> and I've also, to be fair, been confronted by or been faced by how much I've grown and how much I can hold the wounded parts of myself and be with it and love it and also make boundaries and say what I need and communicate and all of those things. And it's been it's been really good. It's been a really good time of really being with myself and holding myself and doing that in the ache, you know, in this ache. And realizing that just because I'm holding myself, just because I'm there for myself, doesn't mean that this pain just goes away. There is a sense of aloneness to me that permeates things right now. And I don't mean this in a depressed way or a dark way. I mean this in in a way as I think aloneness is the fundamental human condition and I have some vague, unformed ideas about where we came from and where we go to after we die. And I, my, my thoughts around that are something like we came from union into these human bodies. Union with everything. Union with the universe. Union with all that is. And then somehow we become differentiated into these human bodies. Perhaps we choose to have this experience. I don't know. But here we are in these human bodies stuck with the longing for union and aching with the awareness that in this human form we will never have it for very long. We have moments of exquisite union, but those moments are fleeting. And at best, the rest of the time, we can hope for a sort of warm togetherness. But even that is very often outweighed or overshadowed by times of having to be by oneself. And I've really, really felt that. I've been living on and off by myself for eight years now. And I've had so many nights of lying on the floor weeping during those eight years of heartbreak, of loss. And every time I have had this excruciating luxury of going through it alone this dubious luxury of going through it alone and every time I've been so grateful for that because there is something extremely healing about not having anyone else to turn to when it's three o'clock in the morning and you're gasping for breath through your tears in your bed and there is no one who can hold you something shifts when you just hold yourself when you just acknowledge the intensity of that aloneness, eventually something shifts and you walk you walk into this vast expanse of being okay with it. Does that make sense? Like being okay with the fact that a lot of the time it is just going to be me and seeing how powerful that is and how if I could, I would always avoid pain by running to others. I would always avoid discomfort by phoning someone, or driving to someone's house or sleeping next to someone or turning to someone, hoping for someone else to hold me. And it's in the times when I can't avoid the pain because there is no one to turn to that the pain really manages 
to permeate and then transform me. And I had one of those experiences this weekend where I was just alone and sobbing and it transformed me. And I realized that I'm not a child anymore. I don't have to inhabit my wounds all the time. I'm an adult woman and I've got me. I've got me. I think that those of us who were wounded early in our lives, those of us who had difficult childhoods or traumatic childhoods or who endured loss early, I think that we have this beautiful awareness, this beautiful gift really, that others maybe only come to later in life. And it is this awareness of our aloneness, of how far removed we are from others, from the earth, of how much we crave to belong and how much we don't. And truly, I think that this is a lesson that all humans must come to at some point in their life. The sense of, I ache to belong, but I don't fully belong. Because I don't think we can fully belong if all of us aren't there yet. I think this this realization of our aloneness is a fundamental human experience. And like I said, I think it's a it's a it's a gift that many of us carry if we learnt that, if we realize that early. But I also think it's something that we are escaping from as best we can the whole time. <laughs> and I think that's okay. It's okay to try and escape from this feeling of aloneness. And in the process we make beautiful connections and we have beautiful moments of growth and joy and intimacy. Yet, again, recently I've been reminded that it's when I stop trying to escape from the knowledge that I'm alone that the healing comes. It's when I go, okay, fine, I surrender. I am alone. It's agonizing. Then the healing comes. And I think of my grandma, who just lost her husband, who is surrounded right now by her daughters and by family members, but who has to relearn how to be without this partner. And I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And yet this is the fate that awaits all of us. If we live long enough, we will lose the ones we love. This is a very dark episode, I'm sorry. And I don't feel dark as I'm saying these things. I'm feeling, I am feeling sad, but I'm not feeling dark. I'm feeling deep gratitude because it's because we lose the ones we love that they're so precious to us. Every single moment we're going through will never exist again. Every moment of beauty is so precious because that exact moment will never be replicated. I look at my face in the mirror and I see how I've started aging. I have some laugh lines next to my eyes. My skin's thinning a little bit. And I'm struck by the beauty of that and the grief of that because the face that I had no longer exists. And I'm not scared of aging specifically. Well, some parts of it scare me. But I am struck by the grief of the fact that the 22-year-old me who once was no longer is. The 30-year-old me who once was no longer is. And every day, a me is dying and another one is being born. Man, that is so utterly fucking triumphant and sad. (laughs) And then eventually, this me will no longer be. And this is... It's magic. There was no one, and then there was me, and then there wasn't me. 
it's fucking magic, you know. So these are my thoughts. We are alone. That's amazing. It also really sucks. But when we are alone and we accept that, even if it's only for a moment, life and healing can rush in. And also, we're not alone because we're all together in our aloneness. And because we all crave to be in union with each other. And we're constrained by these bodies and by our experience of otherness and of misunderstanding each other and of miscommunicating and aching to express ourselves and aching to be seen and always only being half seen and only seeing others as we are and knowing that they can only see us as they are and chafing really at all of these constrictions. And it's all just such a beautiful symphony of frustration and longing and This is what we are co-creating, is this beautiful symphony of aliveness. And in the midst of life, we are in death. And in the midst of death, we are in life. Back in, I think it was March, I wrote a piece of narrative nonfiction for a project called The Dark Mountain Project. The Dark Mountain Project is, Google them, do yourself a favor and Google them. They are a creative collaboration of storytelling and of coming to terms with what it means to be human on this planet, on this, in these times of ecological crisis and collapse, really. And I really resonated with um, with what they're doing when I found them online and then I saw that they were doing a call for submissions for their newest publication. Every year they have an issue of the Dark Mountain Project. They bring together a book of all the submissions they accepted, an anthology of sorts, of stories and poems, fiction, non-fiction, around a certain theme. And this year was uh, issue number 20 and the theme was Plunder and they were asking for submissions. And so in March, I submitted my piece. It was called Do Not Avert Your Eyes. And even as I submitted it, I knew. Sometimes you know. Sometimes you don't know, but sometimes you know. And I knew that this was something resonant, something good. And I knew that it would be admitted. And it was. And then came the process of editing and resending it and editing it again. And finally, uh, the book was published. And the book is called The Dark Mountain Project, Issue 20, Abyss. And it's a collection of writings about plundering and about facing the abyss. I haven't received my copy yet because it's being sent to me from Europe. So I haven't actually read the entire volume yet. But I did attend the opening event a few weeks ago. And a few of the contributing writers read their pieces and... And I think it's truly startlingly beautiful. And I'll link below to where you can read more about it and perhaps read the book yourself. But for now, I'd like to end off this episode by reading you my piece. Because I think it, it links to this topic. It links with the things I've been grappling with. This, this ache to belong. This ache to reconnect to the earth. To really feel myself at home on this planet with my co-humans with my fellow beings 
And it also investigates my heritage and it grapples with that. So here it is. Do not avert your eyes. One recent early Tuesday morning, I wake up from a series of noises. My dog is barking in the next room, completely out of character for this usually soundly sleeping Labrador. And I also hear the rumble of water gushing from somewhere outside my kitchen window where my water runoff is located. My dog's barking, however, is the more pressing noise. I stumble out of bed and give him a stern talking to, but he ignores me and is frantic pleas to be let outside, so I comply, thinking that he might otherwise be sick in the house. And front door wide open, so he might return when he's done, I stumble back to bed. Still half asleep, I lie listening to the continuing rush of water outside. Vaguely I wonder whether my water heater might have burst. Nothing I can fix now, I think, and gradually fall back asleep. The next morning, my neighbor walks into my still open house while I am making coffee. I rent a small place on a farm and myself and the eight other households here form an involuntary community of sorts. This particular neighbor and I live in two semi-detached cottages, so we have cultivated an uneasy intimacy over time. This morning, she's agog. Have you seen, she says, the tap is gone. I follow her to the back of my house and, indeed, the outside tap is missing. It's clean gone, with just a hole in the wall where it has always been. We stare at each other in puzzlement, neither at first realizing what is really quite obvious. It was stolen during the night. Gradually the facts come to light. All the outside copper fittings on the farm have been stolen, as well as some pump equipment. There's been a spate of burglaries in the area we hear. Baffled, our farm manager looks for where the thieves could have entered the property. Like any sensible small holding in South Africa, the property is enclosed with electrical shock wire. We can't find a breach anywhere in the system. I also understand now why my dog barked during the night. I'd always joked that he'd carry right on sleeping even if a burglar were to step over him, but clearly I was wrong. I cringe at the thought of my open front door and send some bemused gratitude to the burglars who, it seemed, took only what was necessary. All in all, everybody on the farm responds to the break-in in a remarkably blasé manner. There is even some amusement in our reactions. Here we are safely ensconced in our little houses with our pets and our laptops and our unlocked cars and these chances manage to pull a trick on us. The stolen taps are replaced with plastic ones, we wonder out loud how they could have come in and we carry on with our lives. Then the burglars come again and again. After the third theft in one week, losses still restricted to the dwindling amount of copper fittings, David, our farm manager, becomes a night watchman too. We sleep less easily. One of my neighbors installs a homemade alarm system. I find myself wondering about these unknown persons. Surely such well-coordinated burglaries must have been executed by a team. Are they hungry? Trying to feed their families? Addicted to drugs? The thefts reek of desperation. Copper isn't worth risking your freedom for unless you're in the kind of dire straits that I can barely imagine. I feel sad for the thieves and worried and conscious anew of the terrible poverty I am surrounded by. I feel, in a word, uneasy. But then, 
To some extent, I always feel uneasy. These are uneasy times. Then the whole drama comes to a disturbing climax. I am away from home for the weekend when, in the small hours of Saturday morning, I receive a string of messages. They are from David, the farm manager, Kum Watchman, posting on our community WhatsApp group. His first message is a photo, taken in the dark with a flash, a brown man lying half-twisted on the ground, blood across his face, mouth open, eyes closed, hands tied together. He looks dead. I don't understand what I'm seeing, nor can I look away, horror and grief rising in equal measures in my throat. There's something wildly indecent about the photo, about that frozen face, that limp body. A voice note follows, David, out of breath, asking for assistance. We caught the guy, he says, sounding shocked. Please, can we get somebody to help us? Within a few hours, we get updates from our landlord. All is well, he assures us. The guy has been caught alive, if unconscious, and he was indeed the thief. He's been acting alone all along. He is known to the police, who call him Bobby, as a petty thief and tick addict. Tick is the local form of crystal meth, which is currently ravaging poor South African communities and acting as key ingredients in gang violence. When David and the other guard caught Bobby, he first tried to stab David, then ran away, tumbling across my flower beds before being tackled to the ground. He's going away for a long time, the landlord tells us, reassuringly. I do not feel reassured, I feel devastated. I return home the next day and see the broken fence around my flower beds and the mundanity of the broken wood stands in stark contrast with the human drama that played out right next to my front door. The agony of this world has crashed into my consciousness, urgent, angry. Don't look away, it seems to tell me. Don't you dare look away. There are many ways to tell the story and I can't quite land on one that rings entirely true. This isn't the time for vague sympathy. Tick addicts are dangerous. Tick grabs its users fast and consumes them with a need for more. They become nervy, skinny, anxious, empty, terrifyingly unpredictable. No theft is too small, no stabbing uncalled for. In that sense, I know it's a good thing that Bobby was caught. Sad though I may be, I know that his petty thieving could at any moment have turned into, and almost did, an assault or even a murder. But I cannot say that justice was done, because justice has not been done for a long, long time. How do I balance my need to be safe with the knowledge that my safety comes at the cost of injury to another? More than that, how do I live knowing that my very existence is built upon centuries of suffering and exploitation. I cannot separate the exploitation of nature from the exploitation of humans. We are nature, after all. My body is dust and water. Air pulses through my blood with the rhythm of my forefathers' hearts. The forefathers who came to this country and took, matter-of-factly, what they thought was theirs. For a long time, I looked at my ancestral history and felt ashamed. Sometimes I still do. I cannot find a time when my ancestors did not plunder, except perhaps in those obscure hunter-gatherer times of which no written record exists. Today, I live in South African wine country, among vineyards the Dutch settlers first established in the 1650s. 
The French Huguenots arrived in the 1680s and expanded the winemaking. A DNA test tells me that I am mainly of Dutch and French origin. Staunch Protestants, hard-working, righteous, my ancestors bartered and skirmished with the indigenous Khoisan people, all the time planting their vines along the heart-rendingly beautiful Cape Valleys. Their treatment of the land and their treatment of its people were both symptoms of the same fundamental misunderstanding, that they were separate from whatever appeared to be different from them. It is the same thing to disregard a human life and to disrespect the earth, and both are, at the core, a betrayal of oneself. They didn't know, or did they know, in their hearts of hearts, and would it have made a difference if they did? They didn't know that what they called civilization was at best a thin veneer, a European excuse to gobble up the wealth of Africa. They knew themselves only to be beset by troubles, by angry Dutch overlords and indecipherable local folk, by harsh droughts and mountain leopards. They knew themselves also to be on the right side. God agreed with them. Be fruitful and multiply, they read in the Bible. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 verse 28. And so they cut down the local fainbos, and they shot the wildcats, and they maimed whichever slaves tried to escape, and they learned to exchange alcohol for cattle with the local people. This alcohol payment later became known as the tot system, where farmers paid laborers with money and wine, a system which was only fully banned in the 1990s. It isn't hard to see where our current drug and alcohol epidemic finds its roots. It is no small thing to be removed from your home. In a sense, European settlers were removed from their homes when they came to South Africa, often due to a combination of religious persecution and economic deprivation, they came here with little save their faith. Ironically, in their struggle to regain a sense of home, they deprived others of theirs. My country, my beautiful country, is an amalgamation of homelessness. I ache to belong. I take my dog for a walk among the endless monoculture of vineyards, and I look at the locusts flying away before my feet, at the guinea fowl gibbering from the nearest tree, at the single fish eagle hovering above us, at the twining weeds coming up between the vines. I love you, I love you, I love you, I speak to the earth. It's a supplication, the kind of thing you say to a lover when you feel them drawing away. Please love me back, I am really saying. Please let me in. This is my home, and yet it isn't. I am too ashamed to live fully within it, too white, too foreign, not only because of my race, but because of my humanness. I carry millennia of separation within my body, separation from my fellow humans, and inextricably linked to that, separation from nature itself. My forefathers were homeless, and they inflicted homelessness, and that homelessness has never left. You cannot harm what is part of yourself unless you have forgotten who you are. We have forgotten. But the forgetting isn't the hard part. It is the remembering that aches. I am remembering. I am remembering that I am part of a whole and that the whole is wounded. I am speaking to the earth. I am reaching out to her. I am scrambling to honor her after lifetimes of disrespect. And she responds, 
she always responds with the same imperative. Do not avert your eyes. I lift up my eyes and look at the mountains. They were here before me. They will be here after me. I look. I really look. I also look at the man at the traffic light standing there with a sign that says, Please help me. Must feed my family and have no job. Keep smiling and God bless. True to his slogan, he keeps smiling as I dig around in my purse for change, as the light turns to green, as the cars behind me start hooting and I fling out a coin while jerking my car back to life. A man is digging for food in the bins on the street corner. A child is sleeping in a doorway. A few kilometers from my house, a new squatter camp is bursting at the seams, dead dogs and small fires dotting its roadside. I cannot help but see how this stands in contrast with the endless expanses of lawn across the university grounds where I work, with the stripped canola plantations and the vineyards upon vineyards that permeate the countryside. I look. I try to maintain a delicate balance, allowing myself to grieve the pain of my planet, yet harnessing this grief towards living softer instead of collapsing with the ache of it. I fluctuate between angst and openness, remaining in conversation with the earth as best I can. I do not, however, fully regain a sense of belonging. Perhaps we have forgotten how to belong. Perhaps it will never be possible to belong entirely until everyone and everything on this planet ceases to suffer. I am remembering still the agonizing poetry of being part of a whole, a whole which is wounded, a whole which is nonetheless vital. At night, I lie under my mosquito net, cradling my own body. It is autumn. It's still too warm for me to sleep with clothes on. One of my hands rests on my belly, and the other curls around my chest, into my neck. I breathe into my arms. I feel the water, and the air, and the dust within my body. I am wounded. I am here. Just before I fall asleep, I understand this is what I can do. I can honor the earth within my body. This is how we live. This is how we continue to build something from which we might make sense. We allow our hearts to be broken. And then we plant seeds inside that broken place.